Bible with you today, let's go to the little book of Titus that's tucked away between 2 Timothy and uh, Hebrews, uh, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. And as you're finding your place there in the book of Titus, let me just give you a little background, a little context. The Apostle Paul is writing uh, to a man named Titus who is the pastor on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And Paul has tasked him with establishing leadership in the local church there. And uh, Paul is, uh, is calling out some of the uh, habits and issues of the Cretan people. And uh, he is rather blunt about some of the things that he says about them. And, uh, and then in chapter 3, he brings it back around and he, he reminds us that we are all in need of salvation. And that it is salvation that changes us. Uh, just like it changes the Cretans. And so this morning I'd like for us to read Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 8 as we take a look at my view of salvation. Titus 3 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Let's pray. Wonderful Heavenly Father, once again we counted a privilege to gather into your house with your people and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have your word. Father, I pray today that you would inform our faith through the Holy Scriptures. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help me to do my due diligence in being an expositor of the Word. Father, I pray that you would bless the work that I have put into the study this week and that you might give me a clarity of thought and communication today to be able to preach your Word in the way you would have it to be preached. Uh, Father, may we glorify you by what we see in Scripture today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, our theme this year is 2020 Vision, and we are talking about world views. And I have to tell you that, uh, make no mistake about it, I, I am trying to build a Christian worldview for us. You see, there are many worldviews out there, as many uh, really as there are people on planet Earth, uh, that are all centered around different things and have different core beliefs. But our goal is to have the right worldview because that's how we interpret everything that we see in life. And just as we have discovered with our physical eyesight, there is a fixed standard. It is that chart that is set at 20 feet and that we read it. And we are either measured by that 2020, 2040, 2010 in uh, respect to the distance on that chart. Well, I would say to you that the Word of God is our fixed standard. And that today we need to stand at the line and we need to focus in on His letters and on his words and allow that to show us where our worldview may be off and needs to be 
corrected. As I approach this today, I believe that the Christian worldview is the right worldview. And salvation is central to the Christian worldview. If you don't have salvation as one of the core beliefs in your life, you do not have a Christian worldview. It doesn't matter if you go to a Christian church. It doesn't matter if you believe in a Christian God. It doesn't matter if you say prayers and you consider yourself to be a religious person. If you do not have salvation central to your worldview, Worldview, you are missing the entire mark. You see, out of all the beliefs that make up our worldview, I don't know of one that is more important to me personally than salvation because of the impact that it has on my life and on your life. That's not to say that my belief in salvation is more important than my belief in God. It is to say that my belief in salvation is what determines my eternal destination, and it makes a direct impact on my life and on your life. Salvation is so important that it is the connective theme throughout the entire Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a connective theme that goes from the beginning to the end. And so when you and I are looking at God's Word, we must see it more than just as a collection of independent letters that are placed together like subjects in an encyclopedia. But we need to see that it is one unfolding drama of God's redemption of mankind that begins with mankind in Genesis and reaches its culmination with the establishment of God's kingdom on planet earth out of the people that he has redeemed from planet earth. And so I am telling you salvation is central to our Christian worldview and it is central to the Bible. In fact, I could turn to many passages today to preach to you about salvation. I could take you to Genesis chapter 3 where we find the proto-evangelum, the first promise of a Savior, where we would see that in Genesis 3.15, God did promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. That was the first promise that God was going to send His Son to save us. I could take us to Isaiah chapter 53 where the suffering Messiah is set up as the atonement for our sin. And I could declare to you the salvation that God was prophesying. I could take you to John chapter 3 where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he finishes that discussion by saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Literally, I could preach an entire year of Sundays on salvation from different texts and never repeat the same passage again because it is that plentiful in the Bible. But today, I have chosen Titus chapter 3 as our text because in it, I find ten essential truths about salvation. Ten essential, indispensable truths that we need to know about salvation. And it's going to take all the time I have allotted to do this, so we're going to have to hit the ground running and make a good pace. And so if you're ready to go, I want you to say, send it. Ready? Oh, you can do better than that. Are you ready? 
All right, number one, salvation is needed by us. Salvation is needed by us. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul makes an indictment, but it is not an indictment of others. It is a self-indictment when he says, For we ourselves also were sometimes disobedient and deceived and serving lust. When we think about that, we need to realize that we don't receive indictment very well. If somebody else is standing out here pointing their finger in my face, telling me where I am wrong, there is something in me that bows up and wants to defend myself. But I find that I indict myself all the time, and I'll accept my own self-indictment. Well, Justin, you blew that one. Well, Justin, you lost your temper there. Well, Justin, you should have done better at that. And I can receive my own self-indictment. How about you? So instead of reading this verse and reading it as Paul indicting us like he's indicting the Cretans, we need to read it as Paul is saying, hey, look, we're all in the same boat together. We ourselves were sometimes disobedient. And the fact is that you and I are guilty of sin. And we need to admit that to ourselves and recognize that because that necessitates a Savior coming. Listen, God would not have sent a Savior if there were not a people in need of saving today. You know, I don't expect the Smith County SWAT team to come to church service this morning. Do you? Why? Because there's not an emergency. There's not a need. There's not a situation that needs to be addressed by some rescuers, by some saviors. But man, if something went down bad, I would expect that. I would be looking for that because there is a need that has presented itself. Well, listen, the need that presented uh, uh, for us was sin. And that's why God sent a Savior because salvation is needed by us. You see, in this verse... The Apostle Paul describes our condition before salvation. He says that we were foolish. We have to define biblical words by the Bible. Foolish doesn't mean just adolescent antics that we are playing out. Uh, Psalm 14 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. When he says we were foolish, he is saying, Hey, we lived like there was no God. We lived self-sufficiently relying upon ourselves. And you know, we as Christians sometimes give ourselves a pass on this because uh, many of us were raised in a Christian tradition and even though we may not have been saved until later in life, we say, well, I always believed that there was a God and I believed that there was. But you know, there was a book that was written a few years back that had a, had a sensational title that got people's attention. It was called The Christian Atheist. And you would read that and say, how can that be? I mean, if you declare yourself to be a Christian, you had to say that you believe that there is a God. And what this book pointed out was the fact that even though you and I as Christians profess that there is a God, too often we live independently of that God. We live like there is no God there. We do everything dependent upon ourselves. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, before we were saved, we were foolish we were trying to live life self-sufficiently. And so how many people would indict themselves this morning and say, yeah, I tried to live my life self-sufficiently. Yeah, if we're honest, we did do that. He went on to say we were disobedient. 
Disobedient to what? Well, disobedient to the authority, disobedient to the law, disobedient to the law of God. You understand that God's the highest authority in the universe? The only reason that we have any systems of morality on planet Earth is because our Creator is a moral being who gave us this innate consciousness of morality. But that consciousness within us is not enough to compel us to live moral lives, he had to give us an external standard. He gave us the law. It is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and the fact is, if you and I looked at those and we were honest about ourselves, we'd have to indict ourselves again and say, I have not always been obedient to God. He goes on and says that we were deceived. What were we deceived by? We were deceived by our sin. Sin is so enticing as we saw uh, last week. We, we have this lust in us that desires uh, to latch on to those things. And you and I are deceived by our sins. We were deceived by our sins. And that's why we needed uh, the Savior, the truth of the Word of God to come and to save us. He goes on to say that we were serving our lust and pursuing our pleasures. And so the first essential truth that we find about salvation is that salvation is needed by us. It's needed by us. But number two, salvation is initiated by God. Salvation is initiated by God. Look at our text again, verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Even though it was we who were in need, it was we who had rebelled, it was us who had sinned against God, it was not us who initiated salvation. It was God who initiated salvation for us. God was motivated by His love for us. He was not motivated by our love for Him. God did not come to save us because you and I had sent out the call. He didn't come to save us because you and I were so contrite about our sins. He didn't come to save us because we were so pure in heart that we loved Him and desired Him and our love drew Him near. No, it was His love that motivated Him to bring salvation to us. But after that, the kindness and love of God appeared unto us. And it goes on to say this, and this is where the words of Scripture matter. The words of Scripture matter. Notice what it says, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Think about that for just a moment. God could have done the saving work all on His own and never told us about it. He could have put the burden upon you and I to try and seek it out. He could have put the burden upon it. Like, like, the, like the university professor who lays out the syllabus, who plans the teaching plan, who has done all of the research work, has all the sources that are cited, and he is sitting there in his ivory tower waiting for those hungry for knowledge to come seek his instruction. You understand that God, by all rights, could have done that with you and I on salvation? But he didn't do that. He actually appeared or brought that salvation to us. He did that through revelation and through incarnation. Revelation in the fact that God went to the trouble to inspire this book we call the Bible. Over a period of 1,500 years, he inspired 40 different human penmen on three different continents to pen 
the revelation of himself and his salvific plan. And he sent that to you and I. And down through the ages, he has preserved that holy word. And he has superintended to lay it upon men and women's hearts to translate that word into every language. Why? Because God wants us to know about his salvation. He initiated it. He revealed it to us. But he didn't just reveal it through the written word. Listen, he revealed it through his incarnation. The living word. Think about how the Bible introduces Jesus in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God has appeared to man, not just in His written Word, but in His living form, in His incarnation. I love how Hebrews 1 describes that God who at sundry times and divers manners spake to the fathers in time past by the prophets, but now in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son, who is the image of the invisible God. And so God, motivated by his love, initiated salvation for you and I. It is God who pursued you and I. Third, salvation is not by our works of righteousness. Salvation is not by our works of righteousness. If I'm trying to form a worldview about what salvation is, I have to understand salvation is needed by us. It is not something that is optional. It is absolutely needed, and without it, I'm going to an eternity of punishment. But salvation was initiated by God. God is the one who brought it to us, and salvation is not by our works of righteousness. Look at the first phrase in verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Do you understand that there is nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves? There are not enough leaves for us to turn over in life. There is not enough reformation that we can do. We cannot achieve the righteousness of God by our works. The Bible is very clear that no one is righteous in comparison to God's righteous standard. Think about what Romans 3.10 says. It says this, There is none righteous. Does anybody remember how that verse ends? No, not one. Well, that's poignant. That's piercing. I mean, I already got the point now. You didn't have to drive it deeper. But why did God do that? Why did He inspire those last words? No, not one. Because you and I are hopeless self-justifiers. We are hopelessly self-righteous. While you may not wear it like a loud coat around for everybody to see, you and I are always trying to justify ourselves in comparison to other people. And we feel good because we can find somebody on planet Earth who's worse than me. I remember when I was a kid, it seemed like every preacher who ever preached through the pulpit of our little country church was the worst sinner that ever lived by their own confession. And I remember thinking, man, if God ever calls me to be a preacher, I'm not going to say that because my buddy Adrian was way worse than I am. (laughs) The fact is, we can't compare ourselves by someone else. The standard is God's righteousness. 
You know what God said to the people of Israel in Isaiah 64 about their sin, about their unrighteousness, about their need for salvation? He said, you are as an unclean thing, an unclean garment. And, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are faded like a leaf, and like the wind, we are blown away. Our iniquity has blown us away. Listen, it's not that we don't try to be right. It's not that we don't try to be good. It is that our very best efforts are inescapably stained by our sin. And so salvation does not come by righteous works. It does not come by church attendance, water, baptism. You don't get credits for how much money you put in the offering plate. None of that can add up to the righteousness that God will accept. In fact, God in Romans chapter 10 had to bemoan the fact that the Israelites went about trying to establish their own righteousness. And in doing so, they were ignorant of His righteousness. And so we uh, cannot be saved by our own works of righteousness. Fourth, salvation is an act of God's mercy. We find this in the next phrase in verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Mercy is a compassionate act of kindness shown toward an offender or an enemy. Do you realize that you don't give mercy to people who are on your side? Mercy is given to the person who has offended you. Mercy is given to the criminal. Mercy is given to the one who is the enemy. Mercy is given to the one who has wronged. And when the Bible says that we are saved not by our works of righteousness, but by His mercy, it is saying that God showed us a compassionate act when we were the offenders. I think about that, I'm reminded of what mercy is. Mercy is when you don't get the punishment you do deserve. You know, somebody came up with the, the little phrase, statement to help us remember grace and mercy. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Grace is when you are gifted with something you didn't earn, you didn't merit, you shouldn't have. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. But on the other hand, mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. You and I deserve punishment. If I were to stand before God in my sins and He took me down the list of my actions and compared them to the righteousness of His law, I would be guilty, 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 guilty. And I would deserve the full punishment of the law. But in His mercy, He withholds that. In His mercy, He doesn't give me the punishment that I deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give us that punishment. And so salvation is an act of God's mercy. Why aren't we immediately cast into hell? Because of God's mercy. How is it that people can sin day after day after day and God doesn't strike them down with judgment because His mercies are new every single day? Salvation is an act of God's mercy. But moving on to the last phrase of verse 5, salvation is regeneration and restoration by the Holy Ghost. Salvation is regeneration and restoration by the Holy Ghost. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Let's define those words. Regeneration 
means new birth. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You see, as he spoke to Nicodemus that night, he told Nicodemus, you weren't born right the first time. Your first birth was deficient. Your flesh is sinful. You need a new birth. You need to be born again. You need to be born from above. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Salvation is regeneration. Salvation is new birth. Salvation is you and I being born of the Spirit of God. And renewing means a complete restoration to the new condition. A complete restoration to the new condition. Aren't you so glad that when God saved you, He didn't just give you this new life, this new birth, but He renewed you completely and He recreated you in His image. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so salvation is regeneration and renewal by the Holy Ghost of God. It is where the third person of the Trinity enters into the work of salvation in that God the Father sends the Son who makes a propitiation for our sins. And when we by faith accept Christ, God the Holy Spirit enters into our life giving us new birth and new life, recreating us into the original created image of God. Oh, I'm telling you, this thing called salvation is outstanding. It is amazing. It is the greatest gift that's ever been given on planet earth. The Bible says it is indescribable, inexpressible. There are not words enough to fully expound upon what salvation is. Number six, salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ. Salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ. Very next verse in the text, verse number 6, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Hey, verse 5 told us that we were saved by regeneration and renewal, but then verse 6 explains to us that it came exclusively through Jesus Christ. Uh, no other way could you be regenerated. No other way could you be renewed. No other way could you be saved except through Jesus Christ. Salvation comes only through Him. As He said in John 14, 6, I am the way. The truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, hey, look, the door is this narrow. It is through Christ and through Christ alone. You say, well, that's arrogant. That's pompous. You Christians, you such snoots, you, you think that you've got a market on religion? You think that your belief system's the only right one? I mean, you're discounting all the millions and billions of other belief uh, believers that are out there that believe in things like Islam and, and Hinduism and Buddhism and all the other like. I mean, how can you be so arrogant as to say that? And we say it because of what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is no other name by which we can be saved. Acts 4.12, the Apostle Peter declares that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
Why? Why is there no other name? Why is there no other way? Why can't the other religions of the world get a person saved? The answer is because they don't have Jesus. You see, the reason that salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ is because He's the only one qualified to save. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You understand that nobody else has what it takes to secure salvation for you and I. There have been some heroes in history who have laid down their lives for other people. There have been some leaders who died for a cause and launched a revolution. There have been some men and some women who have given their life's blood to start nations and countries and other organizations. But let me tell you, there is no one who could save you or I because they're not qualified. They don't have what it takes to be the mediator between God and men. You say, what does it take to be a mediator between God and men? It takes a God-man. It takes God in human flesh to mediate between the divine and and the human. You see, that's what the incarnation is all about. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because God became a man in order that he might die for men to reconcile them to God. And so salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ because he is the only one qualified who can save us. He was 100% God and 100% man. Theologians call this the hyperstatic union. It is the merging or combination of these two independent natures into one person. Unlike the Trinity, do you understand? Unlike the Trinity, the Trinity identifies the three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus never speaks in terms of his God side and his man side. He always speaks of himself in oneness. Because they are supernaturally, eternally bound together. So that our salvation is not, not secure just in a moment, but for all eternity. That's why Jesus still bears the marks in his body. He is a lamb as it had been slain in heaven. Because he is the mediator who is forever mediating between God and men. I know that's pretty heady stuff right there, but let's move on. Number seven, salvation is a full pardon from the guilt of our sins. Salvation is a full pardon from the guilt of our sins. Verse number seven, look at the first phrase. That being justified by His grace. Justified is a legal term uh, meaning to render or declare one righteous or innocent. It is the idea that someone has stood before the judge, the judge has examined them, and the judge has made a declaration. They are innocent, they are righteous, they are justified. And when we read that, we need to understand what God is saying. He is saying that salvation is a full pardon from the guilt of our sins. Romans is one of the greatest treaties on the subject of salvation. 
It is what some people believe to be Paul's magnum opus, that it is his highest writing on soteriology. And in the book of Romans, near the middle is chapter 8, which one teacher described that if the book of Romans were a ring, chapter 8 would be the jewel that glistens in the middle. Romans 8.1 makes this statement about justification. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand? That's what justification means. It is saying there is no condemnation. There's nothing condemnable. There is no condemnable act that we can see or find. You know, in my experience as an Appalachian, growing up in the hills of West Virginia, and then pastoring in Appalachia. Y'all are still in Appalachia, right? I know there's a border between us and West Virginia, but we're still in the Appalachian region. One of the doctrines that seems to have plagued Appalachians the most is the idea that they could do something to lose their salvation. That somehow they could impugn themselves by sin, and that if God called them to eternity in that moment before they had gotten it right, that they'd be in risk of being condemned. Can I tell you, that is thoroughly unbiblical. Now, I understand where it comes from because you and I know how bad we are. And while we may be able to look like we are good people, good neighbors, putting on a good front, we know the darkness of our own hearts and our own minds. We know the, the impulses that we have that we have to fight back. We know that we don't always get it right and we mess it up and we think, you know what, I don't deserve to be saved. But let me explain something to you. When God saved you, He forgave you a full pardon of guilt from your sins. It's called justification. And God has wiped away all the sin. Listen, we get the idea that when we prayed and asked God to save us, that Jesus' death for our sins was up to the point we prayed to ask God to get saved. But from here, boy, we better walk carefully and make sure we've got it right because we could re-sin and fall back into that and lose our salvation. And I'm telling you, justification is that God knew all of your sins from the beginning of your life to the end of your life, and at the moment you prayed and asked Jesus Christ to save you, He forgave you of them all. It's the only way He could declare you justified. He couldn't declare you to be justified if He only forgave you up to that point because, listen, most of us would have lost it in the first hour. And so salvation is a full pardon of our guilt from sin. Somebody has described that word, tried to do a play on words, justified, just as if I had never sinned. Somebody said, no, it's even better than that. It, it, it's just as if I had never been a sinner. But can I tell you, the meaning of that word is even stronger than that. It's just as if I were Jesus. That's what justified means. You see, because our justification is in Christ. And when you and I get saved, we are placed in Christ. So that when God sees us, He sees Christ. And that's how He can declare you and I, sinful people, just. Number eight. Salvation is adoption into the family of God. Salvation is adoption into the family of God. Next phrase in verse 7 
says that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs. We should be made heirs. In the Bible, an heir was a, uh, was a legal and legitimate son who received an inheritance. A legal and legitimate son who received an inheritance. We have to understand that culture at that time. That culture at that time, there were illegitimate children. That just because they had came from the line of that father, that parent, they didn't receive the inheritance. In fact, in that time, according to the law of Moses, the daughters were not in line for the inheritance because in that culture, that daughter would marry a man and that man would have received his inheritance from his family. So the inheritance only went to the sons. And according to Mosaic law, the firstborn son got the lion's share of the inheritance. And so that means that the firstborn son got the biggest portion of the inheritance, whether that was a double portion or however it was separated out, he got the lion's share. So just think about what the Bible is saying here. The Bible isn't just saying that we are children of God, which, praise the Lord, we are, but God knowing the cultures that this would transcend used a stronger word, not just children, heirs, legal, legitimate children who are receiving an inheritance from the Father. Now, that beautiful chapter, Romans chapter 8, I told you about. In verse 17, it says this. And if we are children, then heirs. But it doesn't stop there. Semicolon. Heirs of God. Oh, that's even better. But you know, it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, in case you don't get what I'm saying, you're heirs, you're heirs of God, you are joint heirs with Christ. That is mind-blowing. If you can wrap your head around that, what that is saying is that Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. He is the firstborn. He deserves the lion's share of the inheritance. But when you and I got saved, we were adopted in the family as full, legitimate, legal children. And we get the same share in salvation and in the inheritance of God that Jesus gets. You say, how is that right and I tell you, it's grace. Isn't that what the verse said? For we are justified by grace that we might be made heirs. Now listen, I'm not saying, hey, man, that means I'm going to have a big old pile of money in heaven waiting on me. The impact of that is that I won't miss out on any part of what God has for me. There are no second-class citizens there are no illegitimate children in God's kingdom. We are all full-fledged heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Number nine, salvation is forever. Salvation is forever. The last phrase in verse 7 says, according to the hope of eternal life. Can I recommend this to you? Just take God at His word. Just, just take God at His word. Over 40 times in the New Testament, He said eternal life or everlasting life. 
It's interesting to me. Eternal, I know that that's not a familiar word to, to everybody. And somebody may come along uh, in that vocabulary and they say, oh, I, don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, nobody's ever defined eternal for me. And you know how good God is? God says, well, let me give you another synonym for eternal. It's a compound word. It's made up of two smaller, simpler words. Everlasting. Hey, man, I learned... I learned, I don't know, second, third grade about compound words and that you take those things apart and you can figure out what they mean. Do you know what that word means? Lasts forever. The God who cannot lie said that my salvation lasts forever. Our salvation is secure in Christ. I could take you back to Romans chapter 8, that magnificent chapter, show you the last verses, verses 35 through 39, that says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it goes on and gives us this laundry list can things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, you know, height, death, life. Nothing is the answer. We're more than conquerors in Him who loved us, and nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. We are secure in Him. You know, I don't know if it's the I don't know if it's the aquatic songs that we've been inundated with over the years. Have you ever noticed that a lot of the old hymns had water references? There were ships and lighthouses and treacherous shoal and shores and waves and we were out on life's sea and we were sinking down and you know, we've sang a lot of, about that. I don't know if it's because of that, but it seems like people get this idea that, that salvation is us out in the middle of this tumultuous ocean. We are drowning in our sin, and, and God throws out the life preserver to us, and we have to hold on to that thing, and we're trying to make it through to heaven, man. We're bobbing along, and we're holding on best we can. Sometimes our grip slips a little bit, and we're worried that we're going to fail or fall off. And and let me tell you something, that is not salvation. That's not biblical salvation. Salvation is not you holding on to God. Salvation is God holding on to you. Jesus is not the life preserver. He's the boat. You're Noah. You're Noah. Do you know what that means? You're in. God sealed it. You're on the ship, honey. It's going to get rough out there. And Noah probably stumbled and fell and scraped up his knees once in a while. But he fell in the ark. He never fell off of the ark. And you and I might hit some rough waters. And we might go through some tumultuous times. And we might slip and fall. But you fall in Christ. You never fall out of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. No man shall pluck them out of my hand. And if they're in my hand, they're in the Father's hand and surely no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. And Jesus said, you're in the hands of God and nobody can pull you out, not even yourself. And so I say what my mom used to say to me when the conversation was finished and she didn't want to hear another word. Salvation is forever, period. She would actually verbalize the punctuation so that I knew. End of conversation. God says salvation is forever, period. Ten, last. Salvation is followed by good works. Salvation is followed by good works. Verse 8. 
This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Now watch for a minute. Notice the place of works in relevance to salvation. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Verse 8, they that have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So is good works supposed to be a part of the Christian life? Yes! It's not the part that gets us saved. It is the part that follows salvation. You see, God saved you and I to work for Him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that God hath foreordained that we should, unto good works, that God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. You see, our salvation is what equips us to work for God, to do good works. We don't work to salvation. We work from salvation. Now, we're almost done, but I I don't want you to miss this because up to this point, it's all been about what you get. It's all been about what I get. Oh, man, I I got salvation delivered to me by Jesus Christ. I, I got salvation that I could not earn on my own. I got salvation as an act of mercy when I deserve punishment. I, I got salvation in, in new birth and new life. I, I got salvation exclusively through Jesus Christ. I got, I got the full pardon of sin. I got adopted into the family. I became a full inheritor. I am saved forever. All of that's about what you and I received in salvation. And in this last verse, Paul says, Hey, Tim, uh, Titus, let me tell you something. You, you need to go back and, and pluck this cord again. You need to sing this note again. You, you need to repeat this sermon over and over again. These things I would that you constantly, constantly, constantly affirm that they which have believed in God would be careful to maintain good works. That word careful used differently than we use it today. Careful today means I, I don't want to step on something. I don't want to fall off of something. Careful as it's used here means to exercise thought to think about it carefully and so he wants us to think about this he wants us to think about salvation he wants to think us about what we got from God and he also wants us to think about what we can do now that we are saved think about the works that you can do for God that word to maintain is in the sense of one who is in charge of it it's under your control And so be careful. Think about how you can control your own works. You see, nobody stands over you as a taskmaster in your Christian life saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. We're supposed to be in control of our own good works. And then he makes that statement, be careful to maintain good works. Good not by your standard, not good by the world's standard. Good by the highest standard of God, the highest sense of good by the standard of God. And by the way, he's going to do quality control check at the judgment seat. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 says that every man's work will be tried of what sort it is. 
uh, wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious jewels. The fire will try it. And so he wants us to have good works, not mediocre works, not temporary works. But then that final word is work. It is work. It's called work because it requires an effort from you and I. Too many Christians are kicked back in their spiritual lounge chair, having received the greatest gift that they've ever gotten in life, and they're waiting on God to come back and serve them some more. When God gave us this little window of time on planet Earth, before we get to heaven to enjoy and rest forever, this little window of time on planet Earth, when we can take what He gave us, and we can invest it, and we can plant it, and we can cultivate it, and we can work it, and we can do something for Him so that when we stand before Him, free and fully pardoned, we say, I brought something back for you. I have a gift for you. Paul's all about these works. Six times in the little letter to Titus, he talks about good works. By the way, by the way, this is how we can check our salvation. Those that have believed in God, be careful to maintain good works. Look back uh, with me at verse 16. Remember he indicted those Christians? Look at chapter 1, verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. You know what that word reprobate? We, we've turned that into a terrible word that we use as a, as a, as a, as a what would you call that? Uh, we use it as a pronoun uh, towards somebody. They're a reprobate. It means not passing the test. Every good work reprobate. Hey, look, these people profess that they know God, but when their works are tested by God, they don't pass the test. They are not what they claim to be. And so Paul reminds us as saved people that we ought to be careful. We ought to think every day about how we can serve Him. Would you bow with me? So we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I just want to ask you two things. If you're not saved, why not? If you're here today and you've never experienced salvation... You've never put your faith and trust in Christ. You've never received the gift. Why not? What are you waiting for? There is nothing greater that you and I could do than to trust Jesus Christ and to be saved. If you are saved, then the burden on us is to realize the wonderfulness of salvation and get to work for God doing what He saved us to do. Christian, take some inventory. Be careful this afternoon. Think about what you're doing with your life. And then be careful to maintain good works for the one who saved you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for speaking to us through it today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this meal that we've received and service leftovers all week that he would remind us every single day of the greatest gift that we've ever received, the gift of salvation, and that we would not be content to sit back and simply be recipients, but that we would stand up and that we would get to work doing what you called us to do. 
Lord, I believe that our salvation is nearer than ever before. I believe that Christ is coming back soon to consummate his kingdom. And I pray and ask that you would help us to be found faithfully, diligently serving you, putting some effort in and not simply coasting across the finish line. God, thank you for your salvation. I praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me.